Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome, everybody. We're happy to be with you. We are at the start of the year 2023, so we wanted to say Happy New Year to you all and just kind of talk about that reality of starting a new year and what that feels like. What What are your feelings about that? New Year's. Uh, I, I kind of gave up on the New Year's resolution approach to a new year. Uh-huh. I, it's often a time of reflecting on the passage of time. Yeah. I mean, every second is the passage of time, but we have these markers, right? A month, uh, a year, a decade. Uh, but that year interval is, is particular for me every year. I, it becomes a, a moment of, okay, what were the highs and lows of the previous year? What are my hopes for this upcoming year? What's my disposition towards you, Wendy, towards our children? What, what would I like to improve in my life? How, you know, I, I do examine those things, but yeah. I, I don't necessarily make these hard and fast resolutions. It's, it's more like a falling on my knees and a, Lord, you know where I need graces, and I entrust this new season, this new time, this new year to you. That's, that's kind of my disposition mm-hmm. when I go into a new year. How about you? Well, first of all, I always struggle to remember to write the correct date. When I'm writing the date, I just get thrown off by the change. I do that change. too in okay. my journaling yeah. when I put the date for like the first week or two yeah. of January I'm putting last year. It lasts longer for me. I'm just slow, my brain, to get used to the new year. Um, but I, I remember a time when I was really struck by the words of Christ in the book of Revelation when he says, see I make all things new. And there's such a powerful promise, and it's so present tense. I make all things mm, new. I, Not like I will. I do it. I am about that. And see means that, like I'm going to experience it. So mm. I, all of that is very powerful for me in the sense of this new year feels, it has a certain freshness to it, like my calendar is all crisp still. I still use a, a paper calendar and it hasn't gotten rumpled and wrinkled up yet. And it's kind of clean and it all of that feels that kind of promise of newness. And I just love to connect that with the action of the Lord in my life and just a hopefulness. To, there's something about that reset feeling of a new year that says, okay, I'm leaving something behind. And, you know, that's true as the scripture says, we're his mercies are new every morning, um, but there is something powerful about experiencing it in, at that break of the year and the newness of the year. So I just am coming in, Lord, I want to see you making things new. I want to have that hopefulness that um, your grace at work is powerful and any area in my life where I'm longing for newness that I can open that up to you. Wendy, you know what? I like about doing this podcast with you. What's that? I mean, I like many, many things okay, about doing ahead. this podcast with you. But I like <laughs> that every once in a while I learn something about you that I didn't know. Uh-huh. And I don't think I would have learned if we weren't doing this podcast. Oh, that's kind of cool. I just learned something about you. I like that. About how I like the unrumpled calendar. Well, that, yes. But, 
But <laughs> yes, no, that was new. But I also I like that whole insight you have about you um, make all things new. Yes. See, I make, See all I make all things, things new. new. Yeah. It's beautiful. Anything to share about the Tubi Institute? Yes, I want to invite our listeners to check out what we're doing on YouTube. We have some really exciting things. I want to highlight the WOW podcast that we're now posting on YouTube. WOW is an acronym for Way of Wonder. Uh, Bill Dunahee, my dear friend and colleague at the Institute, and Father Patrick Schultz, a beloved priest and friend of the Institute, Every week they get on our YouTube channel and they reflect together on a work of art and they just talk about what it does, what it stirs in them and how it opens their eyes to a sacramental view of the world. And that's what the way of wonder wow is all about is seeing how the things of this world are signs that point to the next world. And I think they're doing a great job. I love Father Patrick. I love Bill Dunahy. Check out their Way of Wonder video podcast on our YouTube channel, and mm. we'll have the link below. Of course, we have lots of other things we're doing on our YouTube channel. Elizabeth Busby, she has a podcast that she's doing. I have a kind of long-form conversation uh, a few times a month with a new guest, and they get we can watch the whole long form of our conversation, but then there's also those like five or 10 minute snippets that get put up on our YouTube channel. Just start exploring. We have so many great offerings we're, we're presenting there on our mm -hmm. YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to share that in case our listeners don't know. That's right. That's and great. every once in a while, you and I, Wendy, get on there and yes. record this podcast, podcast on YouTube. Maybe occasionally found there. It we don't true. we don't do it regularly because of schedules in your life as a mom. and Right. That kind of stuff. But every once in a while, there are a couple on there, so you can check them out. Mm -hmm. Our first question from a patron is from Andrea. Hello, Andrea. Thank you so much for your patronage of our work. We can't do it without support from people like you. So grateful to you. Yes, Andrea. She says, every time I hear your podcast, I get amazed by the love God has for me. Well, isn't that special? It is. It's really good. Is there any other reason to do this podcast? No, that's all. That's all. We're just doing this for you, Andrea. I'm a 35-year-old... Uh, you know what? I just felt bad for all our other listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing it for everybody. But what I meant to say was, if Andrea, if you were the only one, which you're not, but if you were the only, you'd be worth it. That's what I was trying to say. I didn't want to leave everybody else out. Sorry, Wendy. Keep okay. going. I'm a 35-year-old single woman from Mexico City, and I'm planning to take TOB1 in person next year. All right. I've been praying for a Catholic husband for many years, but I haven't been able to find this person. My spiritual director constantly tells me that it's better to stay single than to marry the wrong man. So I, I try to be patient with God's timing. Recently, I've noticed two things about myself. One is that in my relationships with guys, I tend to get bored, lose interest, or reject them for various reasons. The second is that I'm scared to death of being alone for the rest of my mm. life. So I want to be married, but I don't want to marry someone and get tired of him in a few years. I feel like some childhood wounds of rejection and abandonment are related to my struggles. Can you shed light on all this? Wow, Andrea. I, I, I'm impressed with your self-knowledge 
that you're connecting this with some maybe some childhood wounds. I, I, I feel that kind of trap that it seems like you're in between. No, nah, he's not the one. He's not the one. Nah, I kind of can't see that going anywhere. But then that fear of being alone. I get it. I get it. Maybe. Maybe there are some abandonment wounds. Uh, I don't know your history, but that might be an area to look at. Uh, Wendy and I are always clear on this podcast about saying we're not therapists. So I don't want to claim that I can, you know, get inside those wounds and help you address them and heal. But I, I do, I am drawn, my heart is drawn to that line about your fear of abandonment. That is not a good motivator for pursuing marriage, fear. Hmm. When is fear ever a good motivator? Uh, it's never, we put it this way, it's never the best motivator, right? There are things that are fear motivated that, okay, yeah, maybe in that circumstance we can understand why a person is motivated by fear, and it might be even an acceptable thing. But in, a mar in pursuing marriage, fear of not being married could put a pressure on your discernment that would re could really cloud your your judgment so i would invite you andrea that that's where my heart goes that that may be a wound to expose to the lord lord just and it might be something like this going in a quiet time in adoration if possible and just speaking to the lord like you speak to a friend Say, Lord, I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid. I'm 35 years old. I'm afraid. I'm getting older. I am afraid of being alone. Can you please shine your light on this fear? And remember his overall mission. He came to pour his love out upon us. He came to pour his perfect love out upon us. And perfect love casts out fear. So wherever that fear is coming from in your heart, Andrea, uh, and this is not, I'm not saying any of this to poke or shame or scold at all. I'm, in, I'm inviting you, and I'm thinking of some fears in my own heart. I need to hear this advice myself. I'm inviting you to open that fear to Jesus' love. Jesus' love, to let that love into the fear of being alone. And maybe as you sit with that, as you present that fear to the Lord, again, if you're able in adoration, just begin to listen. Does a song come to your mind? Does a scene from a movie or a story, like a novel you've read, come to your mind? Does a memory come to your mind? Does a kind of sentiment come to your, get aroused in your heart, like anger or bitterness or resentment or more fear? Or is hope coming to your heart? Pay attention to those movements of your heart and pay attention to whatever you might be sensing or hearing or seeing in your mind's eye or in your mind's ear. Those are ways the Lord communicates to our hearts. He knows, Andrea, the language of your heart. And if that's poetry, 
you might hear a poem. If that's music, you might hear a song. If you're a, a movie buff or you love stories, you might see a scene from some movie. And that scene from that movie or that poem you hear, or that song you hear, say, Lord, why am I hearing that song? Is there something in the lyrics that you want to speak to my heart? Is that song connected with some memory in my life? Or, Lord, why am I hearing that poem? Is there something in the lines of the poem that you're speaking to my heart? Why am I seeing that scene from that TV show? Or why am I seeing that scene from that movie? Or why am I having this memory? What are you speaking to me, Lord? As if you're already tuning in to the point that you're maybe hearing a song or seeing a scene from a movie or any of these other examples I'm, I'm offering, then you're, you're tuned in in such a way you're already hearing. And now you can say, Lord, okay, I believe I'm hearing something. Why? What are you speaking to me with that? I've had times, I kid you not, Andrea, I've had times where a song will come to me in my prayer, and I'm like, there's no way that could possibly, that, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and then I look up the lyrics, and then there's a verse, like later in the song, like, oh my goodness, that is speaking directly to what I'm struggling with or dealing with. I have had that more times than I could possibly even count. Same with movie scenes, uh, same with dreams. When you're in a, a time of discerning and, and opening wounds, uh, this wound of abandonment, if there is one in your life, uh, you might have a very active dream life. Pay attention to those dreams. I've, I've had some of the weirdest images and dreams. I'm like, what the heck is that? And I take it to prayer and it starts to break open and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a picture of my heart. It's telling me something. The Lord is speaking to me. I don't think we can read scripture and conclude otherwise. Sometimes the Lord speaks powerfully to people through their dreams. Um, I'm going to leave it at that for now, and I may say a little bit more later, but Wendy, what's on your mind and your heart for Andrea? I, so often I feel like when our listeners get to the point where they are ready to share something as a question to us, we are like getting a peek at God working in that listener's life. And, and I always feel such a joy because when you're outside the situation, like we are, you know, God's up to something and that is exciting. So you could be, you know, writing this question, maybe from a place of like, not feeling very hopeful or feeling like stuck or something. But when I hear the question, I can see like, that's God, God is bringing the pieces together for you. He's shining a light. He's showing you your own heart. And the next step is like, Lord, show me your heart. Because we're um, you're seeing things about your own heart. You need to see the heart of the one who loves you perfectly. You actually opened your question with that, Andrea. I get amazed by the love God has for mm -hmm. me, is what Andrea said. So he that loving God is really shining lights on your heart from your experiences in different relationships. He's showing your, you your longings and your fears. All of that is like grace at work in you. And when he begins to show you his heart, it's what kind of allows that stepping out of the place of feeling stuck and discouraged because his heart draws you forth and you, you feel that 
new sense of freedom in your life that um, comes from knowing the heart of the one who loves you, his desire for you and his power to heal you and to redeem those experiences that have kind of created unhelpful patterns. You, all of that, as you experience that, there's such a gift of a new freedom. And I just feel kind of excited for you, Andrea, mm. even as I read your question for how the Lord is at work in you making something new here. Andrea, I'm led to invite you. I know you're a patron. Again, thank you so much for supporting our work here at the TOB Institute. I want to point you to the patron website, your membership site, uh, where you have the the ongoing formation that we offer our patrons. And I want to point you to the retreat that I did with Bob Schutz exclusively for our patrons. Bob is such a gentle and insightful person, uh, helping people deal with their wounds. I think you'll find some very fruitful reflections on that retreat. And in light of that, I, I want to invite any listener out there who is not a patron, would you consider becoming a patron? There's a host of benefits we offer our patrons, but even if you're not able to take advantage of that, uh, your patronage, we begin at $10 a month. You can offer more than that, if you're able to, we would welcome that. But beginning at $10 a month, that enables us to do the work we do here at the Theology of the Body Institute. If you're getting that little Holy Spirit nudge right now, could you please click that link and sign up as a patron? We would be so, so grateful. There's a collective giving here that enables us to do our work. You might think, oh, what's a big deal? Ten bucks a month is not going to—I'm not going to be that big a help. But if everybody said that, then we wouldn't have any patrons. And if everybody said, I'll give $10 a month, well, that would enable us to do much more than right now we're capable of doing here at the Institute. So please prayerfully consider becoming a patron. Hmm. We would be so grateful if you would. Our next question is from Joseph. Hello, Joseph. Joseph says, I've listened to several of your talks, and you seem to identify strict external modesty in dress with what you call puritanism or the belief that the body is evil. However, wouldn't the opposite be true? And then he includes a quote from Father Tanqueray uh, from a book called The Spiritual Life. It says, nothing so defiles this temple as the vice of impurity, which desecrates both the body and the soul of the Christian. So that's the quote that he's sharing. Wouldn't then an ideal Christian culture, understanding the sacredness of the human body and its role as the temple of the Holy Spirit, place strict standards of modesty and conduct between the two sexes in order to protect this beautiful temple from the risk of desecration? What was this person's name? Joseph. Joseph. Sorry, Joseph. I forgot your name there for a minute. Joseph. Uh, I mean, I want, I want to say... I want to say, what do you mean by strict? Mm. Right? That's where I think we need to begin. I think oftentimes we set up rules around our hearts that actually demonstrate a lack of freedom. And we think that those rules, strict rules, show a uh, a genuine holiness. 
And I want to say this, beware the multiplication of laws. Beware the multiplication of laws. In the beginning, there were two commandments. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the negative, and the positive was be fruitful and multiply. The fall happened, right? And in our fallen humanity, we do need, absolutely, we need guardrails or we're going off the cliff, right? We need these because our alignment is off, if you want to use this as an analogy. Your, the alignment of our car is off, and the guardrails tell us where to drive the car, right? We, we need that. Absolutely, we need that. But the multiplication of laws is a sign of a disordering of the heart, right? So here we have to distinguish and JP2 does in his Theology of the Body, between ethic and ethos. What Christ is really after is not a multiplication of ethics. He's after a transformation of ethos. And the less our ethos is transformed, let's define our terms. I'm sorry I didn't do that. Ethic refers to the rule, the law, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard the ethic not to commit adultery, right? You've heard the law, you've heard the commandment not to commit adultery. But then he says, but I tell you. In other words, right in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the heart of everything Jesus came to teach us, he's saying rules in and of themselves, even the strictest rules, are not enough. The rules in and of themselves cannot change your heart. Hmm. Ethos, it's related to the word ethic, right? Ethic, ethos, we see the, the words have the same root, but ethos refers to the inner desires of your heart. What attracts you? What repulses you? That's your ethos, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not trying to multiply ethics. He's trying to show us the true ethos of the ethics. You've heard the commandment. You've heard the ethic not to commit adultery, Jesus says. But the problem is you desire to commit adultery because your ethos is off, because you have a lustful heart. You could have 2,000 of the most detailed, strict rules against that indulging of that lust. And guess what still remains? The lust of the heart still remains. Even if you have a gamillion guardrails around your heart to prevent you from actually indulging in that lust, which by the way, as I said earlier, we do need those guardrails because we are on a journey from the paradigm of rules to the paradigm of freedom from the rules. For, and Paul talks about this. The goal of the gospel is not the multiplication of the laws. The goal of the gospel is freedom from the law. Not freedom to break the law, but freedom to fulfill the law because we don't desire to break it. Mm -hmm. That is the transformation of ethos. And you do, and I, I, I appreciate, Joseph, your astuteness. You said you've listened to a lot of my talks and you've caught a flavor in my talks where I raise concerns about 
those who just kind of lay down strict rules mm -hmm. of modesty, for example, because those rules in and of themselves are not going to change the heart. And modesty is not about true modesty. The virtue of modesty is not about multiplying rules or making them more and more strict. True modesty as a virtue comes from a transformation of the heart, what John Paul II calls a new ethos, what John Paul II calls a living morality, what John Paul II calls a, a transformation of the very sentiment and character of our emotions and our desires to the point, and here I'll quote directly from John Paul II, John Paul II says, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is, is inviting us to a new way of seeing the other, right? Capable of respecting the spousal meaning of the body, which is John Paul II's way of saying capable of respecting the true dignity of the body as male and female. We only get there, not through the multiplication of laws. We get there through the inner transformation of our hearts. And to the degree that our hearts are inwardly transformed, guess what we no longer need? We no longer need that long list of rules, right? Think about it from this perspective. We started with two commandments. I was going down this train of thought earlier, and now I want to reconnect with it. We started with two commandments, then we had ten after the fall, we had ten, and then over the next several hundred years, the, the Jewish people multiplied those ten commandments into over 600 very detailed rules that got into the most minute aspects of human life, like how to shave your sideburns and how to wash your sheets and all kinds of other things. Beware the multiplication of rules. Beware the multiplication of laws. It is the sure sign that the heart is disordered. And and because the heart is disordered, to the extent that the heart is disordered, you have to have a rule for this, you have to have a rule for that, you have to have a rule for this, and you have to have it, make it stricter, make it stricter. Christ comes into the picture, and now in the New Testament, in the new law of the gospel, how many laws do we have? One, love one another as I have loved you. St. Augustine, kind of unfolding this reality that we only have one law now, he says this, love God and love as God loves, and then do whatever you want. Because if you're really loving God, and if you're really loving as God loves, you're not going to want to do anything contrary to God's law. That is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. And it is a scary freedom, especially for those whose hearts, or to whatever extent a person's heart remains really disordered in its desires, this idea of the freedom for which Christ has set us free appears to be a license to indulge sin. It is not. It is not. It, what does St. Paul say? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Only do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful passions. 
use your freedom to serve and love one another. That is the freedom that I'm calling to, calling people to in my presentations and in my talks. And I, I am cautious. I, I am weary, or wary is the word. Wary. I'm not. I'm. I mean, it wearies me too. But I'm wary <laughs> uh-huh. of those who multiply laws and just tighten the, tighten the chain, tighten the rope, make it stricter, make it strict. Well, okay. We need. We need guide rails, right? As I was saying, because our alignment is off. But more so, we need the adjustment of the alignment so that the alignment is on. And to the degree that our alignment is aligned properly, we no longer need the guardrails because we're not going to go off the rails. We're not going to go off the tracks. We're not going to go off the road. Now, there is always, John Paul II says this, there's always the possibility in this life of falling back into sin. But he says, and I, I'm, I'm quoting directly from John Paul II, he says, the freedom to which we are called enables a great liberty in the relationships between man and woman. We come to an ever greater freedom, he says, in our relationships with one another. Not a freedom to indulge our sinful passions, but a freedom to love in the image of God because our passions themselves are being transformed and redeemed. The sign of a true Christian culture is not the multiplication of laws and the strictness of laws. The true sign of a Christian culture is the transformation of the heart which enables freedom from the law. Not freedom to break the law, freedom to fulfill the law because the heart doesn't want to break it. For such freedom, Christ has set us free, and I will proclaim that freedom to the ends of the earth. Along the way, we need, obviously, we need rules. I'm not saying we throw the rules away. Remember, Christ says, I came not to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. But that's precisely the point. Tightening the the reins, uh, multiplying the laws, is not a fulfilling of the law. It's a sign that our hearts are disordered and a disordered heart cannot fulfill the law. Mm. Just as a, a woman, you know, I cannot deny, and maybe some of our listeners feel this way as well, that when um, we hear people say, or I experience this, there should be strict standards of modesty. There's something inside me that says, um, you want to blame me for your sinful thoughts. You want to be able to say, well, if you hadn't dressed like that, I wouldn't have had this thought or taken this action. Or, um, And I just feel like that is not leading down a good path. And I'm not saying that there aren't ever situations where a person is dressed inappropriately and and a dress could certainly be intentionally trying to um, arouse men in a way that, I'm sorry, not a specific dress, I mean a way of dressing or holding oneself or something, could be sinful. I'm not denying that. But I feel like this kind of comment that says, you know, there should be strict standards of modesty, it just risks so much blaming the beauty of a woman for 
a, a wrong desire to use that beauty. Yeah. And I, I think that that's where you're talking about the change of heart that's needed. I just want to alert the person who asked the question, Joseph, and anyone else out there who kind of thinks that way, that it is very, very painful to be then accused of being the cause of someone else's sin. Yeah, yeah. Even if some part of you can kind of get to the point of saying, but that's not true. There's a deep fear that what, ha but I'm just being myself or, or God put in me this, uh, gave me this appearance or, you know, isn't my beauty a good thing? Yes, yes. And that's where at the very beginning of his question, he said, the belief of the body as being evil. I think that's where we're, what we're trying to look at here is that the, the rules rather than preventing, um, you know, sins of both outwardly and inwardly, instead they kind of just create a system for blaming. Yeah. And it shifts the blame, yeah. right? It shifts the blame. And this is, this is the, this is the Manichaean error at its root. When we shift the blame from the human heart to the human body, uh, if you just wouldn't have dressed that way, if you just would, weren't so beautiful, there's a shifting of blame. And that's not to say, and Wendy, you admitted this already, but just to reiterate, it's not to say that there, there aren't inappropriate ways of dressing. But what are the inappropriate ways of dressing? John Paul II is very clear about this in Love and Responsibility. He says, the manner of dress is immodest when the manner of dress is worn with the intention of arousing lust in another. That's what is immodest in dress or behavior. When you're behaving in a way or dressing in a way specifically with an intention to arouse lust in another. Uh, I remember, Wendy, when we were dating, you, I had to educate you a little bit about what men's struggles were. Mm -hmm. And there was, I remember this tank top you had one summer day and, and I said, you know, that, that could pose a problem for some people. And, and you were like, well, help me help me understand. I just don't understand. That's generally the case. I mean, women who know their dignity and women who know a little bit about male psychology will, will naturally dress in a way that upholds their dignity. Um, of course, we live in a culture that flaunts lust and thinks lust is the only way to think and thinks dressing in a way to provoke lust is a way to get attention and likes on YouTube and likes on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and whatever else. All of that, I'm not condoning any of that, right? I am not condoning any of that. What I'm saying is we must beware, and Wendy, you said this well, we must beware of a I'm going to put this in quotes, modesty culture, quote, end quote, that is not really looking at the disorder of the heart and mm -hmm. is not really calling people to a transformation of ethos, but is just multiplying ethics, which is actually, John Paul II says this, that approach may actually be a loophole to avoid the requirements of the gospel. If I can put the blame over there, if you just had not dressed that way, or if you just weren't so beautiful, if we just had more rules, if we just had stricter rules, and I didn't have to deal with looking at, you know, your shoulder or whatever the case might be, 
It's a shifting of the blame from the disorder of my heart to that woman's body. Or it could go the other way, uh, a shifting of blame from a woman's heart to a man's body. Um, it's not just a male thing, right? When we make that shift, when we put the blame elsewhere, and we're not looking at the disorder of our heart, that's the Manichaean error in its very essence, John Paul II says. And he says that Manichaean error is a loophole to avoid the requirements of the gospel, because the requirements of the gospel is a call to the transformation of our hearts. That's the new law. That's the law of freedom. Nobody lives that perfectly, so we need to respect one another's weaknesses. We need to find ways of doing that. There's a balance here. But just slamming down the rule book is not going to change anybody's heart. Our next question is from a listener named Sonia. Hello, Sonia. She says, I live in Germany, and I'm a Catholic wife and mother of four kids under four. The youngest was born two months ago. Congratulations. Bless you, Mama. And in this time of abstinence, your podcast helped me very much to live our intimacy in a very beautiful, unexpected way. Oh, I'm so glad. It has led me and my husband to a much deeper understanding of our call to love one another as Christ loves. Here's my question. In the gospel, Christ says that one who welcomes a child in his name takes Christ himself into his home. Yes. Lately, I sometimes try to imagine that serving my kids by feeding them, dressing them, combing their hair, bathing them, I do all this to Christ himself. Mm. Is that exaggerated thinking? No, no, you're right on it, girl. <laughs> Woohoo! Go, Sonia. You're living the gospel. You're making the connection. You're, this, is, this is called real lived experience of the gospel message right there. That's the teaching of the gospel, and you are not exaggerating anything really and truly. You are welcoming Christ. You are feeding Christ. What does Jesus himself say? Whatever you do for the least of these, these little ones, you do for me. You are truly doing it for Christ. Mm. Wendy, as a mama, you can speak into this better than I am sure. That I, I love that image. I think it's so powerful, and it's so hopeful. Here's this mother of four very small children. Your daily tasks are many. Yes. <laughs> and yes. to, to have, hold out to us that hope that at least some of the time— those daily tasks could have this profound meaning. They could all the time have it, but I don't want to hold you to that, Sonia. You don't have to be perfect at it. But that grace is right there, that sense of being so close to the Lord in, as you love these children, caring for their needs. It's so beautiful. It's so such a grace and a gift. I'm so happy to hear of it. And I also... I think in the English-speaking world, we tend to be very familiar with uh, the words and teachings that of St. Teresa of Calcutta. Maybe, I don't know if in Germany it's a, she's as well-known, but um, she taught this just over and over to all her sisters, all the missionaries of charity, that to experience that caring for another human being is a type of almost like Eucharistic adoration mm. in the sense of being in the presence of the Holy, in the presence of Christ, of ministering to Him in love. 
as you find him in the little ones. So I think you're so in touch with the gospel, with St. Teresa of Calcutta in her just beautiful insight that so um, just motivates everything uh, that she taught. I, I just, I love it. I'm so yeah. excited about Dear it. Dear sister, I have no hesitation to say that was the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. bringing Scripture alive for you. Mm -hmm. Bless you, bless you. Really and truly, we are the body of Christ. Yeah. Right? And th those children are the body of Christ, really and truly. They they are other Christs. And in loving them, and serving them, and feeding them, and changing their diapers, everything you're doing for those little ones, you are doing for Jesus. That's how intimately related we are to Jesus. He and we are we are one with him. We are one with him. We are one with him to the point that St. Augustine says, and this is quoted in the Catechism, we are not only Christians, we are other Christs. Wow. Maybe it could also speak to the hearts uh, of our listeners, maybe who aren't involved in that particular task or stage of life. When we ourselves need the care of others, that we allow them that gift, mm. that if they are caring for us, that that is an opportunity for them to be closer to Christ and not to deny others that opportunity. So in Sonia's case, certainly your husband is the one in your household that could just be called upon to also give to you physically as you're pouring yourself out for the children. He obviously also, I hope, helps with that. But, but to recognize Christ's presence when we are on the receiving end also of care, Amen. that that is also infused with the grace of just genuine closeness with Christ through that um, caring for one another. We hope you've been blessed by our answers to today's questions. We want to invite you to keep submitting your questions. Patrons, submit your questions at the patron website uh, where your membership benefits are, and that gives you a better chance of having your question answered. That's a little perk we like to offer our patrons. Uh, we, we always begin with a patron question, and then the other two questions of our episodes come from our general pool of listeners, so keep them coming. So grateful to you for being part of our podcast family. Uh, hit that share button if you know somebody who needs to hear what you heard today, and we look forward to being with you again next time. Know it in your bones. You are a gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.